Really glad you're with us at Genesis Community Church this morning. Uh, there is a British missionary. She died in 1970. Her name is Gladys Aylward. Anybody ever heard of Gladys Aylward? Yeah. Uh, so she has a bit of a funny story. Her story is that she really wanted to be, single gal, she wanted to be a missionary to China. And so she applied at the age of 28 to the China Inland Mission, uh, is what it was called at the time, and uh, they rejected her. They said, you can't do it. So she just went to China by herself. She just got there. You know, um, and so 1932, she goes, forget it. I know I'm not accepted. I'll go there. And she tried to stay with a woman that she didn't get along with, and then she ended up moving in with uh, actual ch- like China Inland Mission missionaries. So she wasn't one of their sponsored missionaries, but she was living in a house with their missionaries. And she was employed by the Chinese magistrate to, to go inspect feet. If you're unfamiliar with the really brutal and dehumanizing act of foot binding, uh, it was something where they really were trying to keep women from walking. Some thought it was because of beauty, but to keep them from walking. And they would bind their feet at a young age, and their feet would grow improperly. And so it was seen like small feet were a sign of uh, great status. And so you will still, there's still people like you you could see that. But the Chinese magistrate had outlawed foot binding. And so they needed somebody, a woman, to go into the the Yangcheng province. Um, The Chinese magistrate of Yangcheng, they needed somebody to go and inspect feet. And be sure that people in China were unbinding feet. And who did they ask? They asked Gladys Aylward. That was actually her in to evangelism and ministry in China, traveling around as a foot inspector, even though the China Inland Mission was not that interested in having her be a part of their organization. She got there anyways. And so somebody with a heart for China, wanting to go minister and evangelize in China, unable to go because of the missions organization, but went anyways found a missionary uh, group to live with by the organization that rejected her and then was given a job that required her to travel to villages in China and inspect feet and gave her a doorway for the gospel. She was interviewed later in life. She always had a bit of a, like many of us, a bit of of a doubt about who you are and how God would use you. Uh, maybe you feel that way at times. You're just like, me, God? Uh, in the academy, we call it imposter syndrome, where you don't feel like you belong, but everybody else does. And you're just waiting to get found out. You're waiting to get exposed. You're waiting for somebody to realize that you don't, don't actually know anything. Well, she was interviewed, and she is quoted as saying it like this about her own ministry. I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done in China. There was somebody else. I don't know who it was, God's first choice. It must have been a man, a wonderful man, a well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Aylward. quote continues briefly, and it says, And God said, Well, she's willing. That's how people remember her. If somebody goes, I don't think I was the one God was going to use, but I was the one God used, 
because I wanted to be used, because I opened myself to being used. Must have been somebody else. Must have been somebody else God's first choice. I clearly wasn't God's first choice. Well-educated man, you know, but perhaps he died. Maybe he wasn't willing, but I was willing. I'll say it. We know it. Courage is hard to come by, yet necessary for a walk by faith. You'll see throughout the book of Judges, we've been in it for a few weeks now, but the faith walk for us, for God's people, for life in Christ for us today, the faith walk is something that demands that we do not live by sight, that we don't go and make decisions based upon just what, what it looks like out there. We have to walk by faith, confident in what God has spoken, confident in what God has demonstrated, confident that the promises God has given will come to pass. And when we walk by sight, we miss out. And in fact, you see this throughout the book of Judges, and you just see this throughout the story of Scripture, but when we walk by sight and not faith, we miss out on a lot. And one of the things is just the blessing, actual blessing that comes from obedience. The blessing that comes from walking by faith and trusting God and seeing him provide and seeing him care and seeing him engage and seeing him show up and seeing him consistently keep his promises. We miss that. We miss that. You've probably experienced some opportunity we could put it, you know, in the, you know, the road diverging in the narrow woods or however you'd want to say it, but where you can go left or you can go right. Maybe you can go four ways, but let's just say two for the sake of illustration. You can go two ways. In one way, the outcome is clear. In the other way, the outcome is unclear. And you know that the unclear outcome might actually be better because it demands different things from you, but the clear outcome at least is known. It's at le- you're at least aware of it. You at least know how it's going to look and how it's going to be experienced, and you get to the end, and what happens? There's really no joy in that because you knew what was coming the whole time versus pursuing a walk by faith and not by sight. What happens? What happens when we don't trust God's word, God's promises as we ought? Well, God's will still is done. God's promises are still sure. God is not ultimately dependent on the obedience of his people to accomplish his ends. But what happens? We miss out on a lot through even just unwillingness, lack of commitment, lack of confidence, inability to step forward in God's promises. And that's what we're going to see today. Over the next two weeks, we're going to go through five chapters of the book of Judges. We're going to go through five chapters of the book of Judges because we're not going to do, like, we could do Gideon in, like, seven sermons, but we're going to do it in one. We want to see the way these are connected. We could do Deborah and Barak in several sermons, at least chapter four and chapter five, but we're going to do it in one to see the connection that is going on in these stories. Because when you sometimes take things in a larger chunk, especially a narrative, it forces you to go, what's the most important thing here? What are we doing with this passage? What is being accomplished? So in Judges 4 and Judges 5, we get the story of, uh, your Bible might call it the story of Deborah and Barak. You might call Deborah the judge. There's a lot going on in Judges 4 and 5. That's what we're going to see. What happens when we don't trust God's word as we ought. 
There's really two things happening in 4 and 5. Chapter 4 is the story. Chapter 5 is the song. So 5 is a theological, poetic retelling of the events of chapter 4 with a little more detail. But 4 gives you narrative. 5 gives you song. It's the only song recorded in the book of Judges. Similar almost to the song of Moses. Right After a victory, you declare something that God has done. Some kind of promise. So 4 is the history. 5 is the song. You could say it's narrative and it's poetry. Or however you would put those two things together. But they sit together to give us an idea of what God is doing. The first thing we need to do is hear the story, and then we'll go to the theology, and then we'll go to so what, right? The, 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 not the theology, the, the poetry. The story is this, summarized in this way for us, that God brings victory from unexpected places and through unexpected people. God brings victory from unexpected places and through unexpected people. This is actually a theme of the Christian life. This is a theme of the book of Judges, but unexpected ways and through unexpected people, and that's because of the unique interaction that Deborah and Barak have right at the beginning. We should be familiar with the Judges cycles by now. Hopefully we are. We see, <clears throat> we see this same thing where there's sin, there's crying out, there's the raising up of a deliverer, because there's been oppression in the land, there's a battle, then there's peace in the land for some amount of time. This is how it begins in Judges chapter 4. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jobin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, that would be the ruler, or the, their oppressor, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Just some differences that we see already. We see a size of an army, 900 chariots. One of the reasons that everyone, even, even geopolitically, we don't want to go to battle is because a lot of countries have a lot of warheads, right? The sheer number alone makes you go... Maybe we don't rock the boat. That's why that number's there. 900 chariots with iron. Strong battle implements right there. And we are being oppressed. And it's not just oppressed, but oppressed cruelly. There's ratcheting up idolatry. There's ratcheting up oppression. There's a huge size of an army. There's the increasing intensity of pain. And we have to remember that we bring the consequences of sin on ourselves. They are receiving what God said they would receive. The nation is receiving the consequences for their disobedience from chapter 1. When God said, okay, I've given you commands, I've demonstrated faithfulness, I've told you what to do and you have not done it. And so these people will be a snare to you. But at different times and in different ways we see intensifying snaredom. We see more going on, and we have that with a huge army in the land, oppressing the people cruelly. Sin is our problem. The consequences of sin, they're ours too. What that might do for weeks, months, or years. But there's a twist in this story. You would expect, so the Lord raised up. And we don't see that language this time. In fact, if you look at verse 4... You have an abrupt change, and there's this woman present named Deborah. And Deborah, narrator wants us to know, is highlighting the fact that she's a lady. 
Listen to the way it says it. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. Deborah, female name, prophetess, female, wife, judging. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the house of Ephraim, in the country, hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak. And so we're seeing this wrinkle in the story where someone who you aren't, aren't expecting to be there is there. Somebody willing, it sounds like, right? Somebody who's going to step in. Deborah's there, and she's doing for the people what historically the men were supposed to do. Is it because the men are better? No, they're not. it's not because they're better. In fact, Barak is the uh, anti-hero of the story. He is not the one who does what he's supposed to do. Deborah steps into this role. And so there's a promise given from the Lord through Deborah to Barak. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you, go, gather your men, taking 10,000. They have 900 chariots. You take 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of his army, to meet you by the river Kishon. I will give him into your hand. The Lord has said, gather your people, go in, and I will bring you victory. It is a spoken prophecy through Deborah to Barak about what should happen And he does not believe it. He doesn't believe it. He has this little faith that won't stand on what God's promise is, but needs a wing woman. Verse 8, Barak said, if you go with me, I will go. He's the warrior. He's the fighter. He's the army leader, the militarily trained leader here, I'm assuming, There's an expectation that he leads this army in. People know who he is. He goes, if you go, I'll go. If you go, I'll go. But if you won't go, I won't go. But God's already spoken what should be done. God's already confirmed what he's going to do and how it's going to look and that there will be victory brought through Barak's hand. And he goes, Deborah, if you go, I'll go. But if you don't, I won't go. So Deborah responds, I'll go. Again, willing. Willing. I'll go. But just know this, the road which you are on will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera to the hand of a woman. The assumption is at this point in time, it's going to be Deborah. She's the only one that we have in the story right now, so the assumption is Deborah's going to go and lead the military battle and destroy the oppressors. So Deborah arose and went with Barak. Now I want to start here, and we won't be here long, because... Because we can see this and go, oh, okay, cool. So like male, female, this is a chapter about church complementarianism, right? Like this is, our, our minds just go to cultural moments all the time. We kind of run to what it, what, you know, whatever it's supposed to be. And so that's something that we can think about. So I just want to say it like this. When God's people don't respond in God's way, it doesn't bind God, but prohibits the blessings that come through obedience. Barak was given a challenge. And the men of Israel were to be fighters and the ruling leaders. That was their role, that was their place. This text introduces what is, which is Deborah leading in her role, which the text never says she shouldn't be doing. But Barak shirking from the responsibility that God has put before him. Hiding from it. 
not listening to God's promise, not having confidence in what he said, that a victory spoken by God is as sure as already having been done, and yet he still goes, but Deborah, I need you with me. That, in this point of the text, is not noble. It is cowardly. It lacks confidence in what God has said. Now, I'll say this. I'll use the word similar. We will see similar issues in churches today. Very often, some of the strongest leaders in the church are women. In fact, I think statistically, there are more women in churches than men just in general. Some of the most engaged disciplers are the women in our own church. And I love this. I have no desire for women at the church to be less strong, less confident in God's plans, less sure of who he is, less aware of his promises and his word, less committed to investing in others. I want none of that. But I do want men to be courageous leaders and compassionate, servant-minded. Take the charge. Not, I'm not a warrior. Look at me. Like, I, when, I, when I use the rowing machine, my back hurts. Like, I, 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 don't have, I don't have warrior characteristics in me. God doesn't need us to be able to deadlift 400 pounds. Might be cool, but he doesn't need it. What you often see, even today, and you're seeing even there, is, is lack of courage, cowardly men having the women of the day run laps around them as if it's no big deal. And it is a big deal. Because I'll say to the men in the room, we should be gracious, loving, strong Trusting in God's promises, faithful men in this church, longing to lead, looking for opportunities to demonstrate God's compassion and God's care. And it only makes the environment better because Deborah now can't serve in the role that God had her in because she has to go be a fighter because Barak has gone, well, only if you come. This isn't a new problem. For all of history, since the fall of man have there been men who struggle to be courageous and trust in what God has said. To have confidence in what God has said. I'm reading this book with my son, J.C. Ryle's Thoughts for Young Men. I've read it before, now he has to read it. He doesn't like it as much as I do. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. You're a young man. And, and, it, and it's written by a guy who died in 1900. So the language is a little weird. Thoughts for Young Men is a very easy book. I would encourage anybody to read it. If you have sons, if you're 55, doesn't matter. Great book, challenging. It almost sounds like it was written to men today, but that's because the men it's written to have the same problems, which is a lack of confidence in God and even a lack of concern about stepping into those things. The book begins, it's actually just le lectures, but it begins like this. General reasons for exhorting young men. What's the first reason? For one, there is the painful fact that there are few young men anywhere who seem to have any religion. For that, that means any, any, any demonstrable faith walk. His first paragraph reads like this. I speak without respect of persons. I say it of all, high or low, rich or poor, poor gentle or simple, learned or unlearned, in town or in country, it makes no matter. 
I tremble to observe how few young men are led by the Spirit. How few are in the narrow way that leads to life. How few are setting their affections upon things to come. How few are taking up the cross and following Christ. I say it with all sorrow, but I believe, as in God's sight, I am saying nothing more than the truth. This is no new problem. We see it in Judges chapter 4. A lack of men to stand firm on what God has said and to act on it. And I even know in my years of ministry, speaking at times with wives, one of the only things at times they want when their marriage is tense is for their husbands to lead. Because it feels like they have to do double duty. I have to care for my kids. I have to try and lead them in the word. I have to try and care for them. And get them to church because my husband won't come. And invest in people because I want that. And, 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 I don't think I have ever seen in my years of pastoral ministry a husband bringing his family to church because his wife won't come. I have seen moms bring their children to church because their husband won't come. But I haven't seen it the other way around. Where? It's like, well, my children need to be around people who love the Lord, and they need this, and it doesn't come from my home. It's the same type of thing. Remember, I said similar. Barack stepping back, and Deborah going, okay, if you want this, fine, but it won't go well for you because you're you're going to lose out on the glory and the blessing that comes from functioning as God would have you. So there's victory to be found still because it's already been promised. Yes, there's victory, God spoke, and Deborah said, now it's not going to lead to your glory, the hand is going to be through a woman, and you realize in 14 through 16 that it's coming, and people are being brought out, but there's this new person, Jael. Sisera, the leader of the oppressors, he runs, verse 17, he flees on foot and he went to the tent of Jael and the wife of Hetzer the Kenite, for there was peace between Job and the king of Hatsor and the king of Heber the Kenite, right? So there, there's an alliance here, but not with Jael. And she came out to meet him, assuming everything was safe. Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. She turned aside, uh, so he turned aside to her in the tent and she covered him with a rug, cowardly Sisera. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, right? Like we have cowards in Israel, and we have cowards of other armies as well. Sisera's not doing that great either. Stand at the tent, and if anybody comes and says, is any man with you? Is anyone here? Say no. Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg. Kids, are you listening? Especially you boys. Took a tent peg. Took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Gone. And behold... As Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead, 
with the tent peg in his temple. So now we see as the story has gone, it wasn't Deborah who actually gets the victory. It is Jael whose people were allied with the enemy. But yet even within that group of people, there was one person who was not for the alliance. And Jael wins the victory for God's people. And Barak gets the shame Because what Deborah has said would happen came to pass, but it wasn't even through her. And it wasn't even through their people. It was through someone else. God still did it. God will still do it. God will still work it. He will bring about his ends, and we can have confidence in that. But here's one of the things I don't like, because in every one of these sermons that we hear throughout the summer, there's going to kind of be these two ways to consider it, which is God's purposes always come to end, which is thoroughly and abundantly all the time true. But what that often means for us followers of Jesus is that we throttle back. In our flesh and in our desire, well, God's got it. And, and, and to be afraid that we're going to screw up our closely held theology, we make no provision for, well, what do I do? Even if that's the case, what do I do? How do I function? How do I participate? How do I follow? How do I obey? What do I do? Yes, God's purposes are sure. I don't work as if it's dependent upon me, but I work. But I participate And so you're going to see sometimes these these applications or ideas of God's plans, but there's other parts where you just go, why would we want to miss out on the participation that comes from standing firm and walking by faith? That is so much more enjoyable than living by sight. So there's a victory. And then there's a song. And the song is God's victory declared to God's people. Poetry, if anybody has heard Derek Maffitt do a spoken word, even when he preached on Father's Day, he just kind of went into one. He didn't even say it. He just started, he was like, hey Hans, I think I want to do a Father's Day thing. What do you think? And I thought it was going to be like a, you know, show up and go, hey, I wrote this for you dads. But he just started with it. And I was watching his sermon because I wasn't there that morning. And I was like, hey, hey, you just kind of went in, you just started being a poet there in a second. Songs are easy for us to remember cadences and rhythm and rhyme, it all fits together. And so how appropriate that in this moment of great victory, an unexpected victory through unexpected people in unexpected ways, what a great opportunity to galvanize that moment in the mind of God's people by writing about it. But as it's written about, you actually learn some details that chapter 4 doesn't give you. And here they are. We first just see how bad the land is. The condition of the people of the land and how dark their hearts are. I don't think we realize this as we go through Judges, is that it is a nasty time to live. There's disobedience everywhere. No one seems concerned about the Lord. No one seems interested in God's will and God's ways. Idolaters ever, even when we get to Gideon next week, Gideon was raised in idolatry. One of the first challenges God gives to him is to tear down his father's idols. So Gideon was raised understanding false god worship. It's everywhere. 
You see this some in chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. Just look at these. In the days of Shamgar, he was the judge right there at the end of chapter 3, son of Anath. In the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and the travelers kept to the byways. No one traveled on the roads. They were too dangerous. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as the mother of Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? No one traveled on the roads. New gods were everywhere. Trouble came when we pursued idols and no one was there to stand firm. Not sword or shield or spear were found. So when they gather everybody together to fight in this battle, what do we begin to see? That some in this story are praised for joining in the fight. It did take the faith and confidence of Deborah, didn't it? And then it took the way that she stood beside Barak. It's like, fine, let's go. Let's go do it. And then after that, others came along. But no one stood up at first. But the ones who did go along are praised. My heart goes out, verse 9, to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Break out in song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord, marched down for me against the mighty. For Ephraim, their, their root marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with their kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders. From Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley. They rushed at his heels. They went down, they went in, and they fought. And then you get to verse 15, the second half. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. What does that mean, there were great searchings of heart? There was what, should we? Should we do this? Should we go fight? Should we go join our people and fight along with it? Should we participate in God's victory and in God's battle? Should this be something that we do? I don't know. There's a lot of risk there, isn't there? And we do this too because when your sin has ensnared you, when your disobedience has grabbed you, you know what begins to happen? You at least know what it's like to live with it. You, you, can, you can acclimate to a sinful lifestyle. And so when it's time to step out in faith, like, I don't know, you know, yes, we don't like being oppressed, would prefer there to be peace in the land, but the devil you know Again, among the clans of Reuben, there was great searching of heart. Verse 16, why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there was great searching of the heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field, but not everybody fought. We could come up with like the 80-20 principle for Israel or something like that. 20% of the people do 80% of the work or however that might work. But what you have Deborah praising are those who stepped in finally when challenged and speaking out, calling out those who had 
nothing to do with it. And that is just, again, symptomatic of a people who lost all confidence in the promises of God. Unsure of what he had spoken and what he would do and what he would say and what it would mean. Unable to walk out on it. Untrained and unprepared to move when God said to move. And God doesn't always say to move in every time and in every way. There are chunks of life that we live where it feels like, I wouldn't even use the word autopilot, but they're normal days. And by the sense of normal, I mean nothing crazy happens. like, Like nothing necessarily out of the ordinary. Most days we have are that. But then there are times, unique times, where a faith challenge is put before us in a unique way, at a unique time, for a unique purpose. And these tribes were not ready. But when you see the condition of the land and idol worship, lack of concern, lack of safety, lack of true worship of the one true God, when you see that, what do you begin to realize? That condition led to an inability to walk faithfully with God's promises and have confidence in what he would do, or else everybody would be going out to battle. We sang this song about fighting the battle you've already won. We're fighting it. Fighting the battle you've already won. But so often in the Christian life, we just step back and let other people fight. I'll go if you go. I'll go if you go. If you do it, I'll do it. If other churches do it, we'll do it. As if that's somehow the better marker than just obedience. Well, who else is doing it? Who else is whatever? Like like that's somehow, that might help your knowledge, but it doesn't make it the right or wrong decision in and of itself. And then you get to see a cool little detail about how God brought the victory. God actually used, he superintended natural means to bring about a victory. And that happens in verses 20, 21, and 22, where this storm, an actual storm, is personified. Verse 20, from heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. Right, So the sky is fighting. The sky is fighting Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on, march on, or march my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Israel is covered with what we call like wadis. You ever heard of a wadi? It's a dry creek bed, and then when it rains, it fills. And so, in an instant, you can be on dry land. Maybe you've done this when you're camping. You go, this campsite looks good. dry, safe, flat, below everything around it. This seems safe. And so you're like, it's not going to rain. It's going to be fine. And then all of a sudden it rains. You have two inches of water in your tent. It had been raining for four minutes. And you have two inches of water in your tent. And everything's ruined. You're soaked. Miserable. Like that. When God brings rain. And now you have to contend with 900 chariots in mud. Guess who wins? God's people. Now I want us to think about our own salvation here for a moment. Salvation by grace through faith is the way we would talk about it. It's God's gift. 
a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Salvation by grace through faith. It's ultimately God's story, isn't it? It's God's doing. It's God's work. It's God's activity. It's God's kindness. It's God's love. It's, it's all God's victory. It is his work toward us in his son, Jesus Christ. And his work even comes in an uncommon way, through uncommon means, but it changes us in eternal ways. You see how God is always, God's always used the obscure to bring about his ends. He will even at times use faithless people to bring about his ends. This is not a sermon on being faithless though, is it? It's not what we want. We have to look at even a man like Barak. Again, Deborah is not challenged at all to not do what she did. She's functioning as God would have her. Barak is not. He wasn't ready to move when God said to move. He wasn't ready to stand firm when God said to stand firm. He wasn't ready to fight when God said to fight. This is the story of many of us. Something that this book, you know, the Thoughts for Young Men will even talk about. Satan will be very happy to always have you thinking about how you'll get better tomorrow. As long as tomorrow is always the thing you're thinking about where you'll grow or where you'll get serious or where you'll be more intense about your faith or where you'll invest in people. As long as tomorrow is still there, you're rather useless for the Lord. Because you're just waiting. And it's odd because tomorrow, though it comes every morning... Never comes, it seems, for those of us who always go, well, when this is in order, then I'll get more serious about my faith. When this happens, then I'll do this. When there's more money in the bank, we'll be more generous. When our church is bigger, we will plant more things. Every church thinks it's too small to plant churches. Like, it's like, well, if we were just a little bigger, if we just had a little more, if we just had a little of this, if we just had a little of that. That's not a faith walk, is it? That's not trusting God. We'll see it this week. We'll see it next week as well. More apropos next week. But even when Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says, so go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And then he says this, I will be with you always even to the ends of the earth. And yet, yet, now, I'm pointing, my finger's only going up, right? Point one at people, three back at yourself, or whatever, but we have that command by Jesus and a promise of his participation with us by Jesus. And yet I would ask this, how many of us are actively pursuing and investing our lives in other men or other women to see them mature and grow up in the faith? We have a command and a promise. Later in the book of Acts, we have God's presence with us in his spirit, and yet still, how many of us shirk that responsibility of even disciple-making, of investing in people? Why? Well, I'm not gifted enough. I'm not powerful enough. I don't know enough. I tell you, imposter syndrome is a real thing. Every time I'm in a seminary class teaching seminary students, I feel like the dumbest one in the room. They all know more. I tell my kids this. I say, you guys all know more about the Lord than I do. 
You're smarter than I am. You're, you read more. Your mind works better than mine does. The things you know now about God make my knowledge of God when I was 13 just nothing. What a gift. But it often doesn't matter even how long we've been, been in it. So often we fail just to walk in obedience. To enjoy what comes by walking in obedience. I ask people what to be praying for. Because for me, prayer is one of those areas where we get to see just by how faith we're walking. Where the depth of our prayers and the, the, the longings of our prayers and the things that we are praying, I think, demonstrate where we need to see God move because we can't do it ourselves. And very often I ask people how I can pray for them. And it's like, I don't know, just pray for safety. I mean, there's like these blanket, like pray for safety, pray for health. Pray. I'm, like, I'm like, is that a faith walk? Pray for safety, pray for health. Doesn't every human want that? What's going on in your life right now where God needs to show up? Or else you're not sure what's going to happen. Where God needs to demonstrate his power. And yet, very often, instead, we're like Barack, which is like, hey, listen, I'm in, but I just need some other people to be in too, and then, then I'm in. Here's what I would say for all of us. And this is a, a broad statement that you're going to have to think about how to specify it, but but looking at the life of Barak, the confidence of Deborah, life of Barak, the way that Deborah always seemed to be in the right place at the right time, and even kind of made Barak look a little bad on purpose. Like, like I'll go, but it's not, now, now it's not your victory. Now it's not your blessing. Now it's not your privilege. Be ready to move with confidence where God has spoken. What does that mean? Be ready to move with confidence where God has spoken. Well, Barak heard from the Lord. Deborah delivered to Barak something from the Lord for him. And he was inattentive. Though seeing, he did not see. Though having ears, he did not hear what it was. And he did not act on it. But instead said, I will if you will. And, and I think about us as disciples who have God's word for us. We have God's word. Like we, you know, we're not, we, don't, we don't need somebody to come and just deliver it. We can always just go read it. We can look at it. We can read it. We can investigate it. We can study it. We can talk about it. We can pray over it. We have it. The, the knowledge, the fuller knowledge of God that we have as disciples of Jesus Christ that we can read and meditate on and speak about and delight in and sing songs about things that the song in chapter 5 would not have even known would have existed yet. And yet very often don't we still live by sight. We live by sight. A few examples that I think of that are often, you know, just where we are. Finances is always one. You live for a bank account. And the number has to be a certain amount, and then you feel like you're good. And if you're good, God's good. And if you're not good, God's not good. And yet we live in a country and in a culture that is the most affluent in the history of the world. 
We have access to more. I mean, it's still stunning. This is a still relatively new development that you can have hot and cold water delivered to your house anytime you need it by just turning a dial. Like, that's it. I'm like, yeah, but. Our lives are filled with affluence, and still we just just need a little more. I need to see a little more. Then, then I'm going to be generous. Then I'm going to be serious about, you know, expanding my thoughts towards generosity in life. Let's think about it in regard to maybe even your relationship with your neighbors, ministry to others. You fear how a neighbor might respond to your presentation of Jesus. Because you don't have the right answer. You're not sure. They're smarter than you are. They know more than you do. They've had different hurts and different hang-ups and different issues. And so, so you're, you're nervous about what you might share. And so you just go, you know what, I won't. But if my friend could come over and meet my neighbor, I think my friend would do a really good job sharing Christ with them. But if you go, I'll go. But what, did, what does the word say about Jesus? What does Jesus declare about himself? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. If that's true, then when somebody is dissatisfied with the life that they live, perhaps the best thing that we can do is present them with the life in Christ that they should have. Taking what Jesus said as true. I even think about it in our routines so it's funny, this is usually coffee. We have co- we're a coffee household. Some of you are too. You don't have to be, totally fine. If, you, if you're tea or water, water's probably better. So whatever your style is, is fine. But many people, even see the shirts that say, but first coffee. If you're wearing one right now, don't tell me. But like, but first coffee. Which, think about it. I mean, I know this is no big deal. It's a joke t-shirt. Um, and don't burn yours if you have one. Like, you can wear it next week. It's fine. I won't say anything about it. But we often even live our routines in the morning as if getting coffee is more important than remembering the Lord. Like, like, like we put a lot of other things in front of the Lord, even in the morning, because we're like, well, if I don't have this, then I won't have that. And I wonder if that is really just us living by sight. That... Even, even if we wake up in the morning and just go, Lord, this is your day, and the victories are already promised, and the places where I'll be are already known, and I trust you with it. But if even the first thing we did was remember God, you can have your coffee after that. But, but even in how we get up, the first thing we remember is this is God's day, this is God's battle. This is God's victory, and I want to step where he would have me step. And along with that, that you would not become desensitized to his word. That you would read it regularly. Because when those opportunities provide themselves, you know what often might come to mind if you're just engaged with God's word? is God's word. <laughs> like, like we can, when we hear it and we know it, it removes a lot of the uncertainty. I remember a worship pastor buddy of mine, I've shared this story before, and uh, we, we had this kind of fasting and prayer thing at our church, and he thought it was really cool. And he even said when we debriefed it, I'm surprised it went as well as I thought it was going to go. I was surprised that it, that it was as effective as it was. I said, well, 
That's funny because it seems from Scripture that it's just a good thing to do is to seek the Lord in prayer and fasting. And so I don't think we should be surprised when if we move in a way that God has demonstrated for us to move, that there's, even, there's just a benefit to it. Even if there's not a directly answered prayer that we know of. There's a benefit to obedience that just comes by walking with God and being more closely aligned with him. There's a benefit to reading God's word, even if, after I read it, I'm not sure what the direct application is. Like, there's a benefit to just engaging with it and hearing it. If you've been in our reading plan, you're finishing up Isaiah. My guess is most of us in this room are like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. I'm not really sure. But you know what? Next time around, two years from now, when you're back in Isaiah, if you stick with the plan, you know who's going to know Isaiah better? You are. You're gonna, you, like, like it's, it's little by little, remembering what God has spoken, hanging on to it, acting on what you've heard, and, and trusting him with what's to come so that we're always willing. Because God looked down, and he saw Gladys Aylward, and he said, well, she's willing. She's willing. And willingness is both a disposition and a habit. And if we are dulled by this world and dulled by our own habits, then we will neglect to hear God speaking, God's truth, God's promises, and we'll miss out on the joy that comes from walking with him, which is really the greatest joy in the world.